Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and me, Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss telltales that help us invest, namely the energy markets, macroeconomics, and technology. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The host may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. I don't know how many people get the what is now the seven-page memo, but the seven-page memo is going to be, it's available from Mike and Jason, it's available from Diane, and for the people on the phone who used to come in person at 4 South Street, it is my best effort uh, to replicate what we used to use, which I think got out to about 25 or 30 pages. And uh, it's a different format, and I think it's an improved format. And um, what are we trying to do with it? Um, For me, and I hope for Mike and Jason and everyone on the phone, it is a handy way to look at our whole economy because the alternative would be to go to data, you know, on different sectors of the economy and study the data. Since we have pretty good reporting systems and we have a large number of companies, including some very large companies, that operate in these different sectors of the economy, that's not necessary. We can and we will, especially now that sailing season's over and yours truly has more time, continue to add to these pages. For example, this last page, which we'll come back to, page seven, compares Walmart, Target, Lowe's, and Home Depot. But for this weekend's effort, which will be available next week, we'll have a comparison of Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco as a way to shed light on what I talk about every Wednesday for at least a few minutes, which is commodity pricing in the energy business, oil, gas, LNG. Now, why concentrate on the very large companies? I think that they are the best situated to cope with the volatility that energy is had, that commodity prices have had and will continue to have. This volatility obviously is exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, but it would be pretty darn volatile even if Russia hadn't invaded the Ukraine. What is happening is capital is being drawn away from the energy industry such that the supply will be less than than the demand at regular intervals. And when that happens, even though the demand for oil and 
is like only 5% more than the supply, the price will go up by $20, $30, $40. And that will just, that a good prediction, it's hard to predict oil and gas prices, but to predict these spikes and, 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 and other way, and, and sharp declines, it's inevitable. And it seems to me if you're going to be invested in that part of our economy, you may want to be invested in the very large companies. Now, some future weekend, I will take, you know, three or four upstream companies that don't have refineries attached and whatnot and look at them so that we have that as, a, as something to look at. In terms of recent activity in oil and gas pricing, oil's been pretty strong. Uh, gas is benefiting from the cold weather. Basically, the outlook for commodity prices is pretty darn good. Um, to circle back to before we before I get Mike and Jason to weigh in, page seven, where we look at Walmart and Target, Lowe's and Home Depot, and this is before all these companies reported this week. A couple of things to note. Revenue in Walmart is $600 billion. And when you get through uh, the deducts to revenue, their, you know, the cost of products sold, their SG&A, their CapEx and whatnot, there's only $5 billion of free cash flow out of $600 billion of revenues, which is just extraordinary. Home Depot, by contrast, is about a third of the revenues, $172 billion, and its free cash flow is 23. So its free cash flow is four times as much on one-third the volume. Does that mean that Walmart is a bad or poorly run business? No, but it kind of illustrates what, I've, what I'm kind of looking for. I'm, I'm thinking by the time we get to next spring, there won't just be seven or eight pages, there'll be 19 or 20 pages, and we'll try to cover enough sectors of the economy so that we will be able to use that to figure out where to make investments and where to hold investments. Page six is, which we talked about last week, is uh, the payments companies, MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal. And one of the things you see here is that MasterCard, I would say especially MasterCard, is really quite a remarkable business. One of the things we're looking for by looking at these companies is to see where really good companies are trading. One of the things, if you go about two-thirds of the way down the page, you come to a free cash yield, which is the value of the equity plus the debt related to the free cash flow. So it's 27 times free cash flow, which is a 3.7% yield. Then you go a little further down the page, and you get on the interim results what has happened to free cash flow. And their free cash flow has gone up 13%. Well, if you can buy a business with a 4% free cash yield that's compounding at 13% a year, that should double your money every five years, which is a 15% rate of return. 
and MasterCard is an awfully well-organized business. If we look at Walmart, I mean, no one can say that Walmart isn't well-run. Similar statistics are a 1.5% free cash yield, and it's not, it's not clear. I mean, their free cash flow was actually down. As I say, I'm looking forward to having a page added every weekend to try to look at these relative valuations. If we go to page five, AT&T has a 6% free cash yield, but once again, declining free cash flow. Uh, T-Mobile, which is doing a better, a better job, is a 5% free cash yield, but it's a very competitive business and their, and their free cash flow for the, for the uh, interim period is only up 3%. If we go, you'll remember a couple of Wednesdays ago, we went through Netflix, and to compare, for comparison with Netflix, this is page four, we had Walt Disney and Amazon. Uh, Netflix does have free cash flow, and it's trading about a 2% free cash yield, but their interim growth in free cash yield is 1%. In Walt Disney and Amazon have no growth in free cash flow and no free cash flow. I mean, Amazon's a great business, but it had $65 billion. It has It is running a $65 billion capital budget, so they pay for that, but they don't have free cash flow. If we turn to page three, we were looking for comparisons for Tesla. And uh, I hasten, as you're using these pages, I, I have a pattern here where I don't change the price. So the, 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 the date on, on this price is 1021. So if you're looking at these, you may want to see what happened to the price since uh, these numbers were looked at. Apple, at that time, had a 4% free cash yield, and their free cash f f flow had increased 10% in the interim period. Alphabet had a 2.5% free cash yield and no growth in free cash flow, and Tesla had a 1.5% free cash yield and 4% growth. We get back, we spent a, a ton of time because Mike and Jason are very well steeped in these chip companies. And of course, chip companies have, you know, the China problem of, you know, how much of their revenue is going to be curtailed because they aren't able to ship uh, things into China. Well, here in NVIDIA, and again, this is a while ago, this is the middle of October, was a 2.5% free cash yield. ADM was 4.5%. ADM actually had increased its free cash flow. Intel you know, has no free cash flow. Micron had no free cash flow. And Qualcomm, which is pretty vulnerable, as Mike and Jason have covered with you, had an 8.5% free cash yield. But, you know, again, quite a lot of vulnerability. The first page that we looked at was Charter and Comcast. There we're trying to figure out, you know, who, who's providing Internet service. Uh, keep in mind AT&T and Verizon are doing that, but they're primarily mobile service, but who's providing internet service? Here, Charter had a 9% free cash yield and not a great deal of growth in free cash flow, and Comcast, which has content as well, was around 11% free cash yield. I'm looking forward, I wish I could hurry it up, but I'm looking forward to having 20 of these pages, and uh, we will you know, continue to beaver away, 
I think this will be the very best thing to try to figure out, to have a good sense of what's going on in the economy and be able to make judgments about stocks, not necessarily these very large stocks. We may find a company that is small in these companies, but this will give us a guidepost to uh, how to look at what's going on in the economy and how the capital markets are valuing these companies. I've now chewed through 13 of our 30 minutes and have Mike and Jason here in person. So other than chipping in with questions, I'm going to turn it over with them. And the obvious first question is, is Hunt Lawrence out here tilting at windmills, or is this a useful thing to do? Uh, and feel free to say tilting at windmills. I'm perfectly happy to hear that commentary. I may be biased because this isn't new to me, because you remember when I first started coming to the meetings, you'd have a 30-pager, yeah. or and then it got to be 32 or 36. And so I used to, to, to pester Vivian for copies of it. Maybe the question is best directed to Jason. I, I like it. it. It distills it down. You know, we're comparing these four companies, and it's all in four concise columns instead of digging through 10 Qs. So I appreciate it for sure. Yeah. On retail... One of the ways to think about retail, I think, is the management of their inventory and and, uh, operations overall benefit enormously from being able to store more information in the cloud and, you know, and have just better, better information. If you had to guess, as you look across these four companies on page seven, what would your guess be in terms of who's doing the best in, in utilizing the ability to store incredible amounts of information at very low cost with cloud or having and being able to retrieve the information to make the most sense. Would you think that each one of these companies is probably pretty well up the curve on getting that done, or do you think there's still much improvement to be made? I would be surprised if they're not all well on the way. I, Of the four, though, I would say Target's Digital sales have been down year over year, all this year. Um, so kind of surprising comparing that to Walmart, which is being very successful with their, with their online sales. So maybe if, if anyone's the laggard, it could be Target. I think that kind of shows in the troubles they've had with having the wrong inventory as well. Uh, they've taken some big write-downs this year. It's one of the challenges with operating a big-box retail store. So your inventory can go stale. And part of the reason people shop at those stores, specifically Target, is because it has more trendy stuff. So Walmart's probably in the best position. Right, right. Lowe's and Home Depot are uh, better performers. They have more free cash flow. They look like they're more likely to have growth in free cash flow. And, of course, as interest rates go up and as new home sales decline, that will hurt them a bit. So from a macro point of view, they may not be as well positioned as a Walmart. Walmart made quite a fuss over the percentage of households earning more than $100,000 who decided to get their groceries at Walmart. You know, which, I mean, that, that trend actually makes sense. So I guess you'd have to say from a macro point of view, with interest rates higher and home sales lower, that would be a bit of a question mark on Lowe's and Home Depot. And in terms of macro, the situation we find ourselves in, Walmart may be advantage, you know, not as trendy and, and uh, 
you know, better right. able to pass costs on and so forth. That's my opinion, too. And if you listen to the most recent earning calls at Lowe's and Home Depot, the big ticket sales were the ones that kept up. And you can sort of infer that that is house prices staying elevated, meaning people have equity in their homes that they're able to tap from a HELOC or something like that. So, so long as housing prices sustain, there's probably some level of stability in a Lowe's and a Home Depot. But if housing prices do slide significantly or the credit markets lock up and you can't get that HELOC, then a lot of those projects get put on the back burner. Right, right. Well, we have some time left, about 12 minutes. I just want to revisit page two, which is the chip stocks. I think that the one that's performed the best in terms of recent interims is AMD. And uh, I guess NVIDIA, we don't have a report yet. I guess the, what what's happening with AMD is they're, they're begun to be able to have a significant part of their of their cash flow generating sales from uh, server farms and whatnot and less from PCs because as we saw in the target results where as uh, Mike said things were kind of trendy and 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 not really moving probably the same kind of thing is happening with PCs with shipments quite a bit down under the theory that it's a postponable expenditure. Absolutely. And it was kind of a popular expenditure during COVID because people were stuck at home. So whether it was video games or just surfing the web, you were using it more so you could justify maybe spending more money on it. Right, right. And who can't postpone expenditures are hyperscalers like AWS and Azure. Their CapEx budgets have gone up. Right. So they're still buying a lot of these chips that we're, we're talking about. And um, AMD is releasing a, has released a new line of chips that is, analysts are saying is far and away better than Intel's. Right. So it goes back to something you've said many times, Hunt, is that at some point these guys are just taking market share away from each other. And right. Right now, right. AMD is eating Intel's lunch. Yeah, yeah. Page three, uh, there is... Uh, a fellow that operates in London uh, with a very large hedge fund, uh, TCI, who now is very critical of Alphabet for continuing to hire employees uh, and continuing to spend money on their uh, on their um, driverless car, their Waymo, and uh, I think uh, I think that that. You know, he's probably right. Uh, with the voting stock arrangements, uh, the founders, I guess, can ignore them. But uh, you'd have to think that the overall impact on Google in terms of what their free cash flow, their free cash flow, as I made it, for uh, is $31 billion. I would say uh, Chris Hahn's criticism, which sounded more right than wrong, uh, I, I'd give you fair odds that the free cash flow will be significantly more than $31 billion in 18, 24 months because, you know, I mean, some, some of the people added probably aren't 
you know, aren't adding a lot of cash flow. Uh, it's an unpopular decision to cut heads until it becomes popular. Um, right. And Brad Gerstner, another um, fund manager, their cross-asset funds, they issued an open letter to Facebook urging them to cut headcount. Right. So they did days later, and now all of a sudden uh, we have uh, Amazon's cutting 10,000 jobs. Um, uh, all the big techs are starting to kind of come into line. So this is an opportunity to maybe right-size their businesses and, right. and likely will do well for cash flow. Right. Page four, Amazon, another case in point, uh, $30, $65 billion of capex, which is very high. I mean, Amazon used to run with 20 or $25 billion of free cash flow. One of the questions I had for Mike and Jason is, how much of that $65 billion is uh, AWS, which they have to continue? I mean, if you're in, the, in running servers for other people, cloud computing, whatever you're talking about, you can't very well stint on putting in more server farms. Right. But it's, it's more I, than half. It's more than half of the right, I, I want to say it's 35 right. of the 65. Right, right, right. But uh, this would be a much happier stock to own if uh, rather than zero free cash flow, you had $30 billion of free cash flow. So if they just work their way towards... Uh, curtailing the capex by half that would be that would be a a good outcome for investors um, Netflix used to be on the 30 pages and maybe maybe the fact that they've been able to develop you know customers all over the world uh, maybe there's a case for Netflix but in just looking at the numbers on page four, the revenue is $33 billion. The operating cost, uh, which includes uh, content, uh, uh, is 18. Their R&D is two, SG&A is four. Their CapEx slash, you know, uh, developing their own content is minus six. And so you take in $33 billion of revenues around the world, and you wind up with only $3 billion of free cash flow. Um, and this is a company that is trading basically for about $130 billion. So $3 billion of free cash flow isn't much return on $130 billion of, of market cap. At a point in time when they are going to launch new products, too. So. They have a turnaround plan, right, to right. launch some advertising-supported tiers. I don't know if we have any data on how that's going yet, but Disney is quickly followed by adding ads to Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Um, so they must – they think it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've covered enough so we can spend the rest of the 30 minutes on – something that's really interesting, and that is how uh, cryptocurrency like FTX came apart so quickly. Uh, their, their balance sheet now has been reported because I guess they had to file it as part of their bankruptcy, and they, as I recall, they had about $9 billion of various amounts they owed, and they had about 
$500 million of liquidity in the right. balance sheet. It's kind of extraordinary. Right. And, and it, the majority of their balance sheet was tokens they issued to themselves. Right. Um, in lieu of taking actual customers' deposits and, and investing that in less successful crypto projects. Right. Right. Um, sure smells like fraud. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 uh, I'm sure that uh, that uh, what about repercussions that or do you think they've happened? There's more they're happening more now. Uh, there's more to come. The, I, I saw just this morning another exchange um, stopped all withdrawals. So a lot of them had assets in FTX and by the hundreds of millions and those all went to zero. Right. Um, so now they're themselves having a liquidity problem. Um, and customers want their money back, right? They're rightly spooked by FTX, and right. now no one has the money to hand back. Right. So it leads to a question is, what, what do you do? Because there was a big push, actually, for re regulation. And the, with all the, the crypto people that wanted regulation, wanted it to treat crypto as a commodity. I don't know how this They wanted changes. a commodity, not a security. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the theory there is that the regulation would be less if it were mm -hmm. a That's commodity. Um, so how does this play out? SBF supplied many, um, well, he funded a lot of uh, politicians and was lobbying for a lot of this regulation. So. He's I hope I hope they cash the check. Yeah, so <laughs> hopefully they didn't take it in coin. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how people respond or distance themselves from crypto altogether or uh, how it goes forward. Um, there's a there's a case that if you regulate it, you add legitimacy to it, and I think if I'm the treasury, I don't really want an alternative form of currency to the dollar. No. So. Why would you, where's my incentive to lend credibility to this market? Um, the other departments, I kind of think that they all want to regulate it because that means you can increase the size of your, um, your department. So, well, I, I, uh, I believe that, um, this, uh, set of regulators uh, would just as soon not have to cope with crypto uh, under the theory that they they won't get any credit if they're successful regulating and they'll get a lot of blame if a lot you know money is lost and what I suspect will happen here is that um, crypto uh, investing will basically almost be extinct mm -hmm. because what what are you buying? You're buying a token that you think you can sell for the same amount or or uh, or more, uh, and uh, uh, looking for a greater fool. Yeah, right. yeah. And, and there has been one. In all the cycles, it it goes through these boom and bust cycles. And the latest is, you know, there's ETFs. You can invest your 401k money into Bitcoin ETF. Um, I mean, that's got to be the peak. Right. Re retirement accounts in crypto. Right. 
right, who's, right. who's left. Right, right. Mike um, had a good theory about venture capital. Venture, ca- venture capital is some of the biggest losers in this. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of venture capital funds that are bag holders here. Investments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Sequoia is trying to hide the fact that they ever did the investment in FTX. And, and it just highlights some of these some of these deals are done just out of fear of missing out on the deal and they don't do the diligence. Well, if you want to look at it hyper cynically, that they figured out a way to produce paper profits very quickly. And the easiest way to raise a second fund is to show some returns in the first run fund. Um, and since it generally takes a long time to actually get paid out on some of these returns, if there's enough hype behind a particular fund or strategy, a lot of money goes behind it. I mean, look how much money Andreessen Horowitz has been able to raise in the last couple of years. They're one of the biggest ones that have focused on this type of coin strategy. Right. Um, just before we um, break off for uh, our 30-minute limit, um, what about the technology? It, it seems to me that that it is a better way to transfer money if you have to send money to an overseas location. It is now. Yeah. Um, overall, I don't think it's, as a technology, I don't think it's a better way of sending information and validating that the information was received uh-huh. um, by, by causing a lot of computers of, across the world to do a lot of work just to validate one transaction is not efficient. Right. Um, I think hopefully this spurs the, the the banks and the finance industry to kind of create a better solution for this. Right. Um, but I don't think this is the solution. Yeah. So could a bank, uh, just because of the largest, let's pick on J.P. Morgan, could they use this technology to facilitate moving funds from the U.S. to, you know, let's say you, you uh, wanted to buy, well, let's, let's, let's do sailing. Let's say you wanted to buy a, a high-end moth that uh, was being, uh, uh, was available in the U.K. Uh, what you do now, you do wires. Is there anything, a moth being, for those on the phone, being a single-handed racing sailboat, uh, uh, how, uh, is there any better way to do it other than wiring the money? I mean, is is blockchain superior to, you know, contacting your bank and having them wire money to another bank? Uh, There's a lot of safeguards around sending a wire. The bank verifies both parties involved. If you just send it across the blockchain to the wrong location, which has happened, right? Uh, there's little recourse to getting yeah. it back. Yeah. Um, the, the banks I mean, built maybe, this process for a reason. <laughs> yeah, maybe the way to think about it. Uh, oh, the other thing, just 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 by way of, we uh, we were discussing uh, payments. You know, because you know, cryptocurrency was theoretically a payment system, and and PayPal is kind of uh, I don't know, looks kind of disorganized. This is page six. Nowhere near as as well. Uh, structured and, and executed well as, as MasterCard and Visa. But one of the interesting points that uh, 
Mike and Jason made all payment systems because, I mean, you could look at Block or what used to be known as Square. You could look at PayPal. The Visa and MasterCard systems, especially Visa, for moving money around is so superior that Apple Pay, everyone just uses the Visa system, right? Yeah, that's right. So to think that there's some, you know, new technology that will improve on how it's done now is probably not not a not a not not really a, a I mean people can claim that they have some new technology that's superior but it's probably not a claim that's easily supported right all the innovation has been around making facilitating the transaction much easier particularly particularly on the web right another company we didn't talk about um, last week is stripe right um, they make it really easy to to add payment system to your website and um, it's a really good interface to process the payments. Everyone's probably used it right. uh, many times without realizing. Right. And again, but again, they use visas there. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's not all run out and buy Visa or MasterCard, but it is noticeable. I mean, it, when we get to 18 or 19 of these pages or 20 of these pages, we circle back and say, well, look, a 4% yield on those doesn't look so bad. I mean, that's one of the things we're trying to do is find our bearings on, you know, what are things worth. With that, everyone, uh, we've now run over four minutes. We really enjoyed doing this in person, but it only happened a couple times a year. And uh, uh, everyone, uh, stay healthy and be well, and we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. 